The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Um, this, I think, is going to be the the last show for a while where Jim is joining us from the lovely state of uh, Florida. Um, we'll hear in a moment if the weather improved for him to walk on the beach again. Sounds like it hasn't been cooperating with him too much, but we've got a nice set of questions, I'm sure, lined up for today's show. If you want to send in your own questions for the show, to least for consideration. We don't have a guarantee that it'll make it to the show, but if you want to send in your own questions, just email Jim directly the question. His email is jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And put in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast, and uh, he'll put it in his in his uh, folder, I guess we'll call it. <laughs> Could be could be an electronic folder, could be a physical folder if he goes back to printing them out, which he tends to like to do. But I think he's gotten away from that for the most part. Uh, but uh, yeah, we really do appreciate you sending the questions because that's what makes the Q&A show go. So Jim, uh, when you're ready, why don't you uh, hop in and we can uh, share with everyone your your latest beach walking experience and if it worked out or not. Well, I haven't beach walked until last week, so I'll go again tomorrow, Friday. Mm. So last Friday I went, and this will be my last one because I do fly home on Sunday. So that'll be a little over three weeks, almost four weeks down here in in Florida. So a nice, nice little break, but anxious to get back home. Uh, I miss my house. I want to start getting my garden up and running. I know the weather in Colorado has been <laughs> quite warm. And uh, in the 60s, I believe it is. So that always puts me in the gardening mood. I want to get out there and start getting things things going. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, welcome, folks, to the Q&A version of the Retirement and IRA show. You should be listening to this on Saturday, I think, March 2nd, I think it might be, by the time this hits. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, people will listen to it whenever they want. They might not listen to it till 2025. Who knows? But we want to jump into some questions. We got some good ones, but I want to get some 
some clarity on a few things. We've got a couple of PSA announcements. And we also got, if you will, a PSA announcement from one of our very own CPAs who work with us here at the firm, Chris. Uh, For a lot of people who don't know, we have kind of a team of CPAs now who work for us. They are all podcast listeners. They all have been listening for quite some time on the podcast, but they work together as a team. And uh, we have Paul, we have Steve, and we have Alan. Uh, Let's see if I can remember where they are. Paul's in Colorado. Alan is in Kansas City, and Steve, I think, is in Jersey somewhere because he's got a wicked heavy Jersey accent. So I believe Steve is in New Jersey, isn't he, Chris? I thought it was New York, but... Is he New York? I thought so. It's all the same, isn't it? New Jersey, New York. Well, isn't that something offensive that someone from Massachusetts (laughs) would say? (laughs) We're mass holes, so we can say whatever we want. Um, I know he's a Jets fan, so that, that could put him in Jersey or New York. So I don't know. We'll have to ask him when we chat with him on Tuesday. I'm pretty sure he's from New Jersey. Steve, if you're listening to this, sorry, I can't remember where you're from. But anyways, in response to our Ed Slot show we just did, Paul sent me a couple of texts yesterday. Hmm. So remember we were chatting about prohibited transactions Mm -hmm. and prohibited investments? Yes. And it had to do with the non-fungible token pot. So if you don't know what we're talking about, listen to the... The last uh, EDU show. Last, last EDU show that came out right before this Q&A show. So I mentioned that Secure Act, I thought, had made changes to the prohibited transaction rule with IRAs. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't think of what it was. And I did a quick Google search, and I just found a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo language. So Paul was listening to the podcast, and he sent me a summary from Thomson Reuters on Secure 2. And he said, well, gee, they they did make uh, some change, or they did, uh, I guess, uh, address it in there. And in this um, Thomson Reuters summary... They do address the um, Secure Act and how it did uh, impact prohibited transactions. And it confused me because let me read the summary from Thomson Reuters. And it's why I reached out to the Ed Slot group to say, hey, am I losing my mind here? Is this much to do about nothing? What the hell's going on? So in the summary that Paul sent me, Thomson writes, Tax treatment of IRAs involved in prohibited transactions. And it goes on to say, when an individual engages in a prohibited transaction, and for someone who might not know what a prohibited transaction is, let me pause. I apologize. Don't want you listening to my little tirade right now if you don't know what a prohibited transaction is. It's when you do something with your IRA you're not supposed to. So it's called a prohibited transaction. That's different than a prohibited investment. Prohibited investment is, again, pretty much buying a collectible life insurance or S-Corp stock inside your IRA. You're not allowed to own any of those inside an IRA. But a transaction, a prohibited transaction is generally self-dealing. The two biggest ways anybody listening to this podcast are going to screw themselves over with a prohibited transaction, you run out and you buy real estate inside your IRA like a rental home, and then 
you start trying to manage the rental home yourself. You want to go in and mow the grass, change the light bulbs, paint it, fix it up. Your IRA owns it, but you're running out trying to maintain the rental home yourself. Uh Uh-uh, prohibited transaction, self-dealing. Another thing is trying to get money from your IRA and invest it in a business you own or run or even visit. You might want to use money in your IRA to maybe buy a pizza shop in your town. Great. Just don't go eat there. It's self-dealing. Don't use the pizza shop to hire you and pay you a salary. Self-dealing. So the two biggest ways that people run into prohibited transaction uh, issues is through real estate or buying a business and then trying to draw a salary from that business or benefit somehow from that business. And the IRS, you might be thinking, well, how the IRS ever going to catch me? I think it was about six, seven years ago now, might be as little as five. The IRS started mandating custodians report to them on Form 5498, which every custodian has to send to the IRS every May, reporting to the IRS who owns an IRA and how much money is in the IRA. Was any new money deposited into the IRA? Was any money withdrawn from the IRA? The IRS wants to know all this. But now they have to also report either any quote-unquote hard-to-value assets, including private placements, real estate, things like that, inside the IRA. So the IRS knows who has these funky IRAs with funky investments in them. And ostensibly, they're going to be targeting them for closer evaluation. Mm -hmm. So they can catch you, and that's how. Okay, that's what a prohibited transaction is. Back to Thomson Reuters. So they write, when an individual engages, this is their summary, Chris. When an individual engages in a prohibited transaction with respect to an IRA, the IRA is disqualified and treated as a distribution to the individual, irrespective of the size of the prohibited transaction. This section clarifies That if an individual has multiple IRAs, only the IRA with respect to which the prohibited transaction occurred will be disqualified. Oh, so that's the change. Hold on. This section is effective for tax years beginning after the date of the enactment of the act. But that isn't a change, Chris. They never group. IRAs on prohibited transactions. Ed Slot used to drill into mm. our heads. If your client is going to run out and buy a house, or, there was a period of time not too long ago during the housing bubble where everybody and their uncle wanted mm-hmm. to buy real estate inside their IRAs. Right. And real estate agents were trying to get their clients to buy more homes inside their IRAs because that's where people have a lot of money. And everyone and their uncle was buying IRAs inside real estate. Real estate inside IRAs. So Ed spent a lot of time talking to this. I can still visualize him standing. This is coming from the the, the Ed's mouth directly, Ed Slot's mouth, during one of our classes, uh, probably about three, four, five years ago, saying, if your clients are going to buy real estate in their IRA, break 
out the money that they were going to use to buy the IRA, excuse me, to buy the real estate and put it in a separate IRA. That way, if they complete a prohibited transaction, only that IRA will be disqualified and it's not going to affect. And he gave like an example. You got a million dollars in an IRA. You want to buy a half million dollar house. Break the half million out, put it in a separate IRA and buy the real estate with that IRA. Because if you do a prohibited transaction, which is very easy to do with rental properties, you complete a prohibited transaction, the IRS finds out and disqualifies the IRA as a full distribution, only that half million is distributed. The other half million, because you broke it off, will not be distributed. So when I read this this morning from Paul, I'm sitting there thinking, this has always been the rule. Maybe some people felt that it was a gray area and they just clarified it, making sure exactly that. that. So I wrote to the Ed Slocker. I couldn't get a hold of the big guy himself, but Andy got back a hold of me. He's like, you're right, Jim. It always has been the rule. They're just codifying it into the tax code. So I think, I don't know what Congress's point was. And I think this is one reason that this provision never really got much headline. It's always been the rule. And it's probably one of the reasons I kind of forgot about it. It was like, no big deal. They're just codifying something that's always been the rule. That it's your, that IRA will be the one that blows up. Your other IRAs do not, which is weird because the IRS generally considers your IRAs to be one big IRA. Mm -hmm. Whether you have 10 separate IRAs at 10 different custodians, the IRS looks at it as one big IRA. But a prohibited transaction always blew up that one IRA, not your others. Secure Act just, I guess, Chris, codifies it into law. So I wanted to thank Paul for sending this out to me. I knew I wasn't losing my mind during the Q&EDU show that something about prohibited transactions was in the SECURE Act. But it's one of those things that went in and out of my mind because to me it's a non-issue. It was like, yeah, that's that's much to do about nothing on that one. Uh, And I just kind of forgot about it. But anyways, that's what it was. So I wanted to clarify that a little bit. Perfect. Okay. Two other little things people wrote to us about, little mini PSAs uh, people asked me to share. So I'm going to share these things real quickly so we don't have to talk much about it. But we got an email from a gentleman. He says, love the show. I am from the state that is the largest of the 48 contiguous states. Um, I'm also just saying, everybody should know, Texas. Mm -hmm. Just a quick PSA about Medicare. I'm able to enroll in Medicare this summer. The same month as Chocolate Cake Day. What Mm. month would that be, Chris? That would be July. July. Chocolate Cake Day, for those who don't know, my birthday. It's the one day a year that I will treat myself to a chocolate cake. Not the whole cake, but a piece of chocolate cake. And the cheapest grocery store bought chocolate cake with white frosting. I die for that. He says, Jim, your birthday is four days before mine, so his birthday must be July 20th. I did not receive any communication from Medicare yet concerning my expected cost or eligibility. Hmm. So I contacted them, Mm -hmm. and the representative at Medicare told me they do not send any information out 
until two months prior to your birth month. Mm. He said, at that time, they will inform me of my eligibility and cost. I thought this could be of help to others, so I'm Mm -hmm. sharing it with you. Yours is still my favorite financial podcast and my go-to while walking. So thank you, George, for sharing that. And anybody else, as you get close to Medicare age, apparently two months before, not your birthday, but before your birth month. So if this guy was born in July, then I would say in May, Mm -hmm. he would be receiving a letter outlining that he is going to be eligible for Medicare. Paid. Excuse me, Medicare. I'm surprised they wait that long, and that's. I'm glad he sent that in because um, I don't know if in the past they did it differently, or maybe I have to admit, maybe I had it wrong. But I was pretty sure in the past that if you had, if you were turning Medicaid eligible, Medicare eligible, sorry, in a year, so the year you're turning 65 they went ahead and batched you together with all of those other Medicare notices that go out to everyone else who's already on Medicare in December when they tell you, hey, heads up for January, your Medicare premium, and sometimes it's before December, but uh, late in the year, hey, your premium's going to be this. And I don't know why they would wait um, for, for the other crew, and I th- I didn't realize they did if, if they ever did. I So this is either a change or I had it wrong in the past, and... I don't think two months is enough time, personally, because if you uh, miss it, you know, just knowing how the bureaucracy uh, moves within the Social Security slash Medicare system, because the Social Security system, you know, administers essentially Medicare, um, that uh, if you, you know, miss the letter or it's a little bit late or uh, something's up. Uh, it just makes me nervous that you won't get signed up in time to be actually on Medicare in the month of your 65th birthday with them. Yeah, and what out that confuses late, me is most people know, I don't know, but if not, you'll learn. <clears throat> when you're eligible for Medicaid, the first Medicare, I know I keep saying Medicaid, Medicare the first time, your enrollment period, if you will, is seven months long. Three months before your birth month, mm-hmm. your birth month, yep. and three months after your birth month. So if you can enroll, this gentleman can re- enroll in April. If he can start enrolling in April, three months before his July birth month, yeah. why are they sending him a letter in May? I don't know. I think they should Shouldn't be sending they it be out sending two it months in, before in that. March at least? at least a month before he's eligible to enroll? What do you think? Uh, I would think so. That would make sense because then everybody's got the information they need to make decisions in that seven-month period. Plus it you know, lets people know that they can go ahead and get the ball rolling three months before their age 65 month. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I'm, I'm surprised that uh, if what they told him is true is actually happening. That just seems like too quick of a turnaround. Yep. So anyways, I wanted to read that PSA. We have another one. So this had to do with the elder fraud that we spoke about. I think that was on a Q&A show. I don't think it was an EDU show, but it was not too long ago. It was just over the past week, I believe. So it says, after hearing your report of the older couple who were scammed by their daughter, having a large money, having, excuse me, scammed by their daughter, 
having a large amount of their money taken from their IRAs resulting in a large tax bill, I wanted to let you know about our situation. We are do-it-yourselfer VGs. So VGs is my affectionate term for all you do-it-yourselfers, especially those who have their money at Vanguard. But whether you have money at Vanguard or not, doesn't matter. We just call them VGs for Vanguard Engineer. And you don't all have to be engineers either. You just have that engineer mindset. You're going to get in there. You're going to do it yourself. You're going to solve this. VGs. We are do-it-yourself VGs who manage our own retirement funds. A year or so ago, after we retired, we decided to finish paying off our mortgage all at once. So we withdrew several hundred thousand dollars from our IRAs at Fidelity. So they're VGs, but their money is at Fidelity. So would that make them FIGs? Maybe something like that? <laughs> Fidelians. Fidel- well, oh, yeah, there's Fidelians and Vanguardians. <laughs> But VGs are Vanguard engineers. Right. A Fidelity engineer should be a a, a Fiji. No, a Fiji. A Fiji? Yeah, that's a that's a country. That's fine. That can't, makes it even can't cooler. Name someone a country's name. I can. I have no problem with <laughs> <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Whatever. Whether you're a Fiji or a Fiji, it's up to you. <laughs> Let's get back to this question. Not question, but PSA. A year or so ago, after we retired, we decided to finish paying off our mortgage all at once. So we withdrew several hundred thousand dollars from our IRAs at Fidelity. Within a week, Fidelity called us to inquire about it, just checking to see why we took out such a large amount of money from our IRAs when that was not our previous pattern. Fidelity has voice recognition software, so I assume that is how they knew that they had actually reached me and not just someone answering my phone. Anyway, they talked with me a bit and I explained the situation, paying off the mortgage, and everything was fine. I also thanked them for checking on this. I've got a few comments to say on this. To the best of my knowledge, they are not using voice recognition software because they would have to first prove that you were the one talking into their voice recognition software to begin with. I am a little bit surprised that a company, 800 number style company, you didn't have a direct advisor. You just had someone from Fidelity reaching out, didn't first want to clarify they were in fact talking to you. Because if something nefarious was going on and that person did answer the phone, um, that could have easily defeated the purpose of their phone call. So Fidelity does use that, by the way. They do have voice recognition software, mm-hmm. but she would have to have talked into it. And well, she's I, I don't know in the on the call when you're talking. They've talked to you before when they've confirmed who you are the more traditional way, and then they essentially have kind of a voice fingerprint or voice print of you. And they do use that. I know Fidelity does use that as a way of identifying people just through natural conversation. I'm surprised. I did not know that. Surprised that the regulators even allow that. I know when we do things, we, well, I won't get into to all the rules that we follow, but uh, for instance, we won't accept trade. No one will. No one accept trades through an email. We have to accept trades uh, through a phone call. And then the advisors in our office who have a relationship with the client are the ones who will call them and confirm because they know who the client is and what they would sound like. But we don't use voice recognition software. 
Anyways, it's good that they called you. I'm glad they did. And if they are, in fact, using some software to actually prove that they are talking to you, then I'm a little less hesitant that what they're doing um, wouldn't work if they truly do have this software to prove that they are talking to you and to find out. So it is good that this custodian did that and to follow up um, and at least... Initially, when I read this, Chris, I thought the cynic in me, they just want to know why they're losing such a big amount of money, especially if she's paying them an AUM fee. I don't know. She didn't say, although she did say she is a do-it-yourselfer, so she's not probably paying them any fee. So I I do feel it was good and a good step in the right direction. If anybody else out there has similar stories of their custodians, if they do it, true do-it-yourselfers not working with an advisor and you're taking large sums of money, not 20, 30, $40,000 out, but hundreds of thousands of dollars out. Let us know if your custodian is reaching out to you as well, just to inquire. And how are they proving you're you? Are they asking you personal identifiable, you know, what's your social security number, what's your date of birth, um, stuff like that. How are they identifying when they reach you on the phone that they actually are talking to you? Yeah, and I think these so, companies are, and I'm sure, I know Fidelity's not the only one doing stuff like this, and they, I think, are having to move to this since most people's personal information is all compromised. All those classic questions that they used to ask you to prove you were you, I can just go look up on the internet now. I can figure out what your social security number is, your date of birth, your your address, the you know all all this kind of stuff, your maiden name, all all that stuff is so out there for most people now unless you've lived in a cave and been disconnected from technology. Um and well, which what puts if them you're in just relying situation. on software, what if you I don't think it's just that. I think it's that's just another layer. Most of these companies aren't going to rely on just one thing. They'll just be a layer of stuff. First thing, if they called you, they're calling the number on the account. They're not taking an incoming call from some random person. So there's that's the first layer. And then as they're talking to you, they probably did ask you a couple of questions. Um, just even if it was just seems like a regular conversation. And then with the voice recognition, also telling them, yes, this is the person who's enrolled in the voice recognition in the past. You know, you get little, like all these little green, I'm not in the call center, but I suspect there's these little check marks that start showing up. And as long as you get all greens on, on the checks, then uh, they verify it's you. So I think that's, you know, likely most of these companies that deal with dollars, you know, many, many dollars for people are going to have layers of security protection. And it can't just be asking you your mother's maiden name and stuff like that. That's, that's all compromised information at this point. I see. That makes sense. I mean, they... As a do-it-yourself, you don't generally have a relationship with a dedicated advisor. You might have 800 numbers that you can call. So that makes a little more sense. If they truly do it during the account opening process, I don't know how they can actually prove the person on the phone is who they say they are. But if they then have voice recognition from that point on, they would have to be disclosing. This is all I'm saying for privacy purposes. Hey, your voice is being captured for voice recognition. They do. It's something you, you enroll in. Okay. Well, that would be, and if that is true and other custodians offer this, or if you're a Fidelian, you might want to enroll in this voice recognition software thing. So 
if something happens in the future and Fidelity is calling to find out why such large amounts of money are being taken out of your account that doesn't follow the norm of what you normally do, uh, you would want to make sure that the uh, voice recognition software is set up in case the person who's stealing your money uh, is the one answering the phone. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So anyways, I, I like that, that they was... reached out. I like that they're apparently monitoring for abnormal distributions and then reaching out to make sure everything's legit. I think that's exactly what a custodian should be doing. Exactly. So if anybody else has stories like that, they want to share or custodians who never called you up at all and you took out a massive amount of money, mm-hmm. um, feel free to share it with us and we'll share it with our listeners. All righty. Let's get into our actual questions then. I wanted to take care of those three things before we started. Mm-hmm. We have two Social Security questions, Chris. Okay. I'm awkward pausing because I'm trying to find them. I was reading the other questions just now. Okay. This one came in from our website in early February, it looks. They are from the good state of no hint, which doesn't surprise me because it came in. Uh, although, no, he does say this is to our podcast. It came in from our helpwithmysocialsecurity.com website. But he is from the state of Ohio, a state that I may move to in the not-too-distant future. Okay, says, hello, Jim and Chris. Love the podcast. I have a Social Security question. Let's say the husband is 62 and the wife is 59. And the husband is receiving $3,600 a month. Will the wife get a spousal benefit a spousal benefit from SSDI? I'll let you explain what all these acronyms mean, Chris. SS or initialisms. SSDI. Does it work the same as if the husband were getting SSI? I'm glad they went on to say they were on SSDI, uh, which is Social Security Disability. Um, because when you said they were 62 and getting 3,600, I was already a little skeptical because regular social security retirement benefits have claimed that early would be difficult to have gotten them up to that, that high, you know, that with the, with the reduction, if your full retirement age is 67, um, claiming at 62 only gets you 70% of your full retirement age uh, benefit. So to still be left with 3600 that is a, a benefit that might not be possible. But with SSDI, one of the differences is when you've been declared disabled and eligible for Social Security disability, you claim at likely a much younger age than your full retirement age. And actually, you have to because once you reach your full retirement age, you don't get SSDI anymore. They just start paying you your retirement benefit. But prior to that, they pay you a near equivalent to your retirement benefit without the penalty of claiming early. That's essentially what SSDI does is it pays you what you would get at full retirement age about. It's not exact, but it's about, um, but at a much younger age because you are, in fact, disabled. Now, I do want to clarify something when he says SSI. People think that's the regular Social Security system. That's not true. SSI is essentially uh, the the low-income welfare income uh, situation, uh, which can be tied to people with disabilities, but it's also uh, kind of folded into a 
little or no income situation and they pay you this as a what a lot of people call quote welfare so he's talking about uh you know is there a difference for a spousal benefit with ssdi versus regular social security uh, retirement benefits and the rules are essentially the same Uh, when he's claiming a social security disability payment it does unlock the door to a spousal benefit for the spouse but all the rules for the spouse still hold true which is you've got to be 62. And if you're 62 and you want to claim, so the wife in his scenario is three years away from that. So when when she turns 62, she would be eligible for a spousal benefit, but she doesn't get the same protections because she's not the one who's disabled. So if she were to claim at 62, she would get the lower benefit compared to waiting. And also she would only be paid a spousal benefit if her spousal benefit is larger than her own benefit. She cannot file a restricted application for just the spousal. Um, She would be, when she went into claim, uh, be forced to take the higher of the two benefits, which might start her benefit uh, if it's bigger than half of his full retirement age benefit. So Um, Yes, it does unlock the door to a spousal benefit, also child benefits if you have a qualifying child. And so SSDI uh, effectively, for purposes of auxiliary benefits, um, is is very, very similar. The only difference is the family maximum with disability is different than the family maximum calculation with uh, regular retirement benefits. So I'm saying they're substantially similar but there's a couple of little nuanced uh, differences there. But uh, I don't know if this is good news for him or what, but it's uh, once she reaches 62, she would be eligible for a spousal benefit at that time, which I think is the bottom line question for him. Oh, I thought I was muted. That's why I wasn't saying anything. I wasn't muted oh. at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah was, the system was all totally ready for you. I didn't realize that. Jeez, good thing I wasn't talking to myself. Yeah, for sure. You'd be wondering what the hell's going on. Yeah. All righty, let's get to the next question. Okay, this, do we have a hint? We do have a hint. Hmm, Good. Oh, I remember this hint. I'll give you a hint to this hint, Chris and listeners. Mm. It's not Wisconsin, because that's the first state that jumped into my head. And then when he gave the actual state, I was like, really? Hmm. So the answer is not Wisconsin. You all are going to think Wisconsin, because I did. Dear Jim and Chris, also known as Bugs and Cowboy. So he must be a longtime listener if he remembers Bugs and Cowboy. Should be Bugsy and Cowboy, but Bugs and Cowboy. I live in the state where the state beverage is milk. Hmm. But it's not Wisconsin. It's <laughs> not that's, that's Wisconsin. what I always thought, too. Because that's the first thing that jumped hmm. into my mind. I'll continue reading a little. Okay. It's a fitting tribute yeah. to the leading bomb products. It also salutes the state's gentle dairy cows who produce a generous 22 quarts of milk a day. Again, we don't vet these answers. I just have to assume that people know what they're talking about. Because I thought Wisconsin, and then when I saw his state, I was like, huh, I didn't ever guess that. 22 quarts, that's a lot of milk. Um, 
Um, wow. Uh, let's say Illinois. I have no idea why you chose Illinois, but nope, not Illinois. I, I was thinking something not too far from Wisconsin that has... A lot of well, ag, according to him, Pennsylvania. Iowa? Oh, oh. I'm sure the state beverage is milk in Pennsylvania, but I would have thought Wisconsin, the state beverage would be Pennsylvania hmm. um, milk. Interesting. Okay. So he begins. I was thinking back to my mom who raised my four sisters and I by herself when my dad passed away suddenly due to a heart issue in his mid-40s. I was only five. He was just starting to enter his high earning years as an accountant. Mom pieced it all together with a retail job, social security, and eventually a reverse mortgage before she passed away in 2018. I was wondering what the Social Security rules are, or were in the past, for a situation like hers. Mm -hmm. When someone who is the primary or only earner of income dies at such a young age, does the Social Security Administration apply any formula to compensate for such a scenario? Or are the surviving spouses penalized further by the death of the spouse early and their benefits based on the much shorter working record of the deceased spouse. Mm -hmm. Thanks for your commitment and to sharing all your wisdom and the humorous banter. It reminds me of Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon of the Johnny Carson show. So who's Ed and who's Johnny? I got to be John. You can be Ed. You kind of look more Edish. I look more Johnny-ish. Probably. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're Ed. I'm Johnny. I'm fine with that. Okay. Um, this is a good question. I don't know if we've talked about this before. Not a scenario that affects a ton of people. Luckily, having someone having a parent die at such a long, young age is very very unfortunate. Um, the rules are specific to adjust for this, and what I mean by that is, I think what he's worried about is that normally your social security benefit is based upon your 35 highest earnings years. Uh, They adjust them all for for inflation. We call them indexed earnings. And then they cherry pick your 35 best. And if you are missing some years that you didn't work, you put zeros in there. And and someone who dies in their 40s is not going to have 35 years of earnings, most likely, in there. And even if they did have some, a bunch of them are probably really low. But they probably don't even have close to 35. So if they're going to pluck 35, there's going to be a bunch of zeros in there to average, and it's going to drive down the Social Security benefit that uh, they potentially would have had, um, but also spouses and kids that are left behind have access to. So effectively what they do is reduce the number of years of the 35 that they consider. So they only consider the years that you have uh, earnings and they drop off your five lowest uh, and then whatever's left, which might be 10 or 15 maybe that are left and they'll take your best 10 or 15 if you're in your 40s when you pass away because uh, they take uh, you know the potential and, 
and make that adjustment. So that's how they would have adjusted for it. And you didn't say whether your mom and, and yourselves were receiving any benefits. Hopefully someone claimed benefits or let them know uh, as your mom is raising you because of the ages that you kids were, uh, there would have been Social Security benefits available to be paid uh, for the kids up until you were 18 or 19, if still in high school. And um, yeah, so I, I hope that your family was receiving those benefits. Unfortunately, if you didn't, there's no going back and claiming it afterwards. But um, But yeah, if this happens to someone else that you know, they do make that adjustment and they effectively adjust for not having 35 years to pull from um, to come up with your Amy, your average indexed monthly earnings to then lead to your benefit that would have been for you, but now you're gone. So it's available for spouses and kids instead through another formula we don't need to go into, but the benefits are available there. So that's how they kind of protect a penalty for someone dying before they've amassed 35 strong years of earnings. And this time you are muted, so you'll have to unmute to talk. Gotcha. Okay. All righty. Excellent. This next question, the author feels it's more art than science, and I'll tend mm-hmm. to agree with her, but I think there could be some science in it as well. Uh, see if they gave – oh, they did give a hint. Oh, I got this one. I'm going to go out on a limb. No Googling. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, there's no way in hell you're going to get this one. Hmm. I got this because I like to read history. Dear Jim and Chris, I am from the state where Colonel Crawford was burned at the stake in 1782. Hmm. Virginia. Is there a reason you chose Virginia? Hmm. I'm going back to that era, 1782. It's a lot of activity in Virginia. Seems okay. like a state that might do such a thing. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you're doing pretty good. Good guess. Wrong, but good guess. The state is Ohio. Oh. Perhaps future home to yours truly. Uh, and I only know that because I recently read a history on uh, Ohio. Uh, excellent, excellent uh, book. Um, I'll, I'll dig it up when when I have a chance and I'll let everybody know what it was. And um, it also happened around uh, the War of 1812 period. 1782, of course, isn't near 1812. But what was happening in the 1780s and 90s was ultimately leading to the War of 1812. And uh, it was the uh, it was it was a really good. It was unfortunate for Colonel Crawford, of course, but um, the Shawnee Indians burned him at the stake. Mm. Okay, it says I have a question concerning private equity insurance companies buying company pension plans. I could not find the original podcast where you discussed this, so let me try to be clear. I can choose to take a lump sum option or a monthly annuity payment from my pension. I had originally planned to take the monthly payment, which is what my husband did with his. We both work for the same company. 
But after hearing that some company pensions are being sold and by and sold to private equity insurance companies, I now wonder if it's a good idea for both of us to have the monthly payment from one company's pension. Our minimum dignity floor will be covered by my husband's current pension. An income annuity that we have with New York Life, as well as my Social Security, which I will start at my full retirement age, and my husband's Social Security, which he will start at 70. Both my husband's current pension and our New York Life annuity are 100% joint and survivorship. So let's pause there, listeners, and Chris, and ponder a little bit about what she's saying. Both of them work for the same company. The husband is already retired. He did not take a lump sum. He took a pension. So he took a lifetime stream of guaranteed income being backed by this company. But she is saying between that pension, which is joint and survivor, An income annuity that they already have, and I'm guessing have already annuitized, with New York Life, as well as their two Social Security benefits, it's going to cover all of their minimum dignity floor. Okay. Anything you want to add to that? No, I'm trying to kind of follow all the parts here. Okay. How can, and before I continue reading, she's worried mm-hmm. that if she annuitizes her pension, they're both, both those income streams are tied to one company now. And she's worried, what if they sell that pension? So let's just talk a little bit. Most private pensions are insured by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Association, otherwise known as you, the taxpayers of the United States, through the the government. The government runs the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And it's often thought if the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation doesn't have enough money to back pensions, the feds will bail it out. I can't say that's true or not, don't know, but that's what the feeling is that the government would bail it out like they bail out banks all the time, it seems. But she's worried, not so much that the company fails, the pension fails, and the government steps in. And assuming her pension amount is equal to or less than the maximum insured amount that the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation would protect. And I don't know because she doesn't share what the pension amount is. So if the company failed, I'm thinking in my mind, there's less risk because Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation would step in and assuming both their pensions are below the maximum protected amount because you only get up to the maximum amount. If your pension is greater than that, you only get up to the maximum amount then the government would be paying their pension essentially for them for the rest of their lives. She didn't mention that, Chris. She didn't mention failure. She's worried that the pension will be sold, that the company will sell the pension to an insurance company, which many companies are doing. They're just passing that risk on. 
Sadly, when that happens, you lose the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation protection. That, I think, is what she's saying she's worried about. Not She never mentioned the failure of the pension. She just mentioned, I'm worried that they're going to sell it. Now, the good news is, before I read some more of her email, Congress has kind of caught on to this, but they move at a snail's pace. And under Secure 2, which we had just been talking about earlier on this show, There is a provision in there for Congress to begin looking at this. And there have been hearings already last year um, in Congress on this very issue. And I told you that one of the people who helped find a found or one of the founders of the TSR ratio, uh, he testified before Congress. He's opened my eyes a lot to the horrors of private equity-owned insurance companies and the gimmicks they do on their books and how they move everything overseas to Bermuda or the Cayman Islands and why they move everything overseas so they can go by gap accounting rules of those countries rather than SAP accounting rules in the United States. And again, I don't want to get too deep into it. So, Congress is kind of waking up to this, and I'm going to guess over the coming years, and I'm not saying decades, but years, I would assume within two to eight years, they're going to put a stop to this or Mm -hmm. or something in there that someone who has an ERISA-protected pension benefit guarantee corporation-backed pension all of a sudden does it, and they have some private equity-owned insurance company backing their pension? That just doesn't seem right. I just don't know when this is going to happen. So I had mentioned this on a previous podcast. Okay, she says, how can someone determine if a company's pension will be around for the next 30 years? Our pension is well-funded, but things can change. I have not retired but I'm now considering taking the lump sum and just putting it into a MIGA, multi-year guaranteed annuities for those who don't know what that means. Sounds to me, folks, like she wants to be very, very secure with that money. So she wants to put it in a multi-year guaranteed annuity, most likely rolling multi-year guaranteed annuities. I wouldn't recommend buying a 10-year annuity. I would recommend maybe a three to five-year most rolling series of rolling annuities to keep that money very, very safe. And if that makes her feel happy and that's what she wants to do, fine. I have no issue with that. She said, I will continue to do this until the day in the future that we may need more secure income. And then I can use some or all of that annuity to help pay for it. Another reason the lump sum payment is appealing to us is that we want to convert more of our our IRA money into Roth IRAs. And this next sentence confuses me, Chris. I don't know if she misspoke or you can pick up on what she means because I'm confused. But this may also be canceled by the fact that we would have additional money in the IRA. 
I don't know what that means. To, to me, that's a good thing. If you're looking to convert, you move more money to an IRA. Well, no, there's because, she's going to have more money piled up in there because she's going to take the lump sum from the pension. But she's looking to convert it. She says another reason for the lump sum payment is that we will be able to convert more of our IRA money to our Roth IRAs. But because, this is also because the canceled. income is going to be low, lower. The income from the pension will be lower because that pension won't be there. It'll instead be a lump sum. So there's going to be an offset to a certain extent there. The RMDs are going to be higher. The balances of the accounts are going to be higher, which um, you know is going to offset a little bit the effectiveness of Roth conversions trying to beat down those RMDs. Um, that, that's what she's talking about. Okay. I confess I don't quite follow that part. We are well-funded in both IRAs and Roth IRAs. So to me, I think this is more art rather than science of retirement planning. So I'm reading that. Folks, it's the saying, this woman is saying, we got plenty of money. And we have fairly good tax diversification. We've got a lot in IRAs and we have a lot in Roth IRAs. Because she's saying this is more art than science. The lump sum amount? $230,000. I would appreciate your insight or any thoughts you could share with us. So my thoughts before Chris chimes in, Chris does a lot of the planning in the firm and does most of the programming of our software. I'll let him chime in, obviously. But my initial thoughts are, according to you, listener, you have all of your minimum dignity floor protected. You didn't talk about survivorship, but from what you shared, your husband's pension, which is at this company that you work at, is joint and survivor. Your New York Life annuity is joint and survivor. The higher of the two Social Security benefits, which I believe is your husband's, because you're claiming at 67, he's waiting to 70, His age 70 Social Security benefit will continue. Your Social Security will be lost at your death. But the survivor, whether it's you or your husband, whoever survives, it doesn't matter whoever dies first, only his Social Security will remain. Your expenses will drop by about 20 to 30 percent. We've shared it doesn't drop 50 percent. But generally speaking, in our practice, we see 20, probably closer to 25 to 30 percent drop in expenses, especially on minimum dignity floor expenses, when a spouse passes. So perhaps your lifetime stream of guaranteed income will continue to satisfy uh, in a survivorship scenario. And you shared with me and all our listeners, because I read your email to everybody, that you're worried having all your eggs in one basket with that pension. Not so much with the pension going bankrupt. That wasn't your concern. And I think it's probably because you checked and confirmed that the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation would protect your pensions. You're worried about them selling the private equity where that is lost now. So my thoughts would be taking the lump sum, which we're not knee-jerk reaction to taking the lump sum. We love lifetime guaranteed secure income. But because you told me you already have enough 
I think 230,000 dedicated like you want to do, kind of segmenting it out mentally. You can put it in one big IRA. I don't care. But you're going to segment 230,000 out mentally and say, this is earmarked for future secure income needs. I think that's perfectly fine. Assuming all your numbers fall into place. I have no problem with that. I think it's a good idea. We we often tell people you might not want to buy one income annuity from one insurance company. You might want to buy two or three if you're worried about one company going under. Now, a company like New York Life, I personally would not worry about them. But some people do worry about a company maybe going under. So they spread the risk out by buying multiple income annuities from multiple highly rated insurance companies. Just kind of spread the risk out that one of them might go under and they were unlucky enough to pick the one that went under. So you're kind of doing the same thing here. You're saying, hey, I can take the 230. I'll keep it safe. I'll keep it segregated. I'll grow it. And if I need it, either as a couple or a widow widower, we'll have it and can annuitize it later to cover our income needs. So in your particular case, I'm okay with it. I don't know what Chris will say, but I'm kind of okay with it. Mm -hmm. My thoughts would be, though, because you're saying everything right now is covered, I would encourage you maybe to take a little more growth orientation with that 230 Paying attention to your risk tolerance, absolutely. But if you don't need it, and it doesn't sound to me like you will, for quite some time, I'm talking well into your 80s maybe, most of the time we start to see what we call the crossover point when most couples need additional monies around 78 to 83. So let's say it can take you to 80. You're only in your 60s, I believe, late 50s, 60s. You'll be losing a lot of potential growth. So one of the things that we try to do is the concept of the see-through portfolio. And you're kind of doing that. You're breaking this 230 off by itself. Well, if you have that earmarked for an income need well into the future, 15, 20, 25 years from now, I think maybe emotionally you would feel more comfortable investing that aggressively saying, hey, that 230, yeah, it's down. The market's down. It's down. Who cares? That's being earmarked for needs well into the future. Now, of course, you have to pay attention to your risk tolerance, but I would position those dollars, in my opinion, a little more growth orientated than you would get with a MIGA. Now, right now, MIGA interest rates are around five. So that's not bad to lock in. But I think equities would offer a more promising growth opportunity to grow that 230. And then as you get closer to the point in the future where you feel you guys might need additional secure income, you can start moving the equities into something more secure. This is all my thoughts, Chris. What are your thoughts? Well, I think generally that's true. I think what she, the way her scenario as she's describing it, this appears to be a decision that might be more dominated by risk management um, and a form of diversification, not having all your, you know, the income tied to this 
one pension, not all the income, but a substantial amount of income tied to this one pension since her husband's got the same uh, company pension uh, already. So the only thing I guess I would check ahead of time, and this is where the science part can come in versus the art, is make sure that the pension payout isn't particularly attractive for some reason, something you couldn't replicate easily. Um, probably isn't, even if it is, it's probably not so monumentally better than you could get in the open market. Chris, from another I'll, I'll interrupt you because I know you can do this. I yeah. didn't read it because she didn't give us her ages, so we couldn't confirm anything for her. Yeah. But 230000 lump sum or 1350 per month. I'm guessing levels. She didn't mention anything about a COLA adjustment. Yeah. But I have no idea what her age is. Yeah. So that's going to be the problem and when that would start. So, um, and you know what the survivor choice is on that. That's a 7% payout on the 230. So, um, you know, that I would look at it more in detail to make sure you're not walking away from something that's particularly attractive because I'm not so overly concerned, especially because 1350 a month um, is low enough. And the value of that, um, again, it's uh, a bit of a diversification issue, right? Having these different income streams coming from different sources that if something horrific happened to one of them, at least it doesn't happen to all of them or too many of them simultaneously. So I'm leaning towards uh, especially since you pointed out the fact that the other remaining income sources are likely to satisfy your minimum dignity floor, that you could uh, have this off separate. And even if it is kind of reserved for future minimum dignity floor protection, like Jim described, a potential crossover point where maybe the pensions don't keep up with uh, the you know, inflation on the minimum dignity floor, uh, that you have this money set off to the side to be then deployed at the time. And, um, you know, you've kind of separated it from the risk of that pension being sold off to an unattractive insurance company. I would hope, as Jim mentioned, that Congress is going to fix this issue uh, because it's at the beginnings. It hasn't become a rampant problem yet, but it's ramping up is how I describe it. It's becoming more and more common, and hopefully they'll address it before too many issues start to arise um, and an insurance company challenges or failures or disruptions to these payments that have been now shifted over to the insurance company from the pension plan. Um, it's, I think enough people now know that it's at least on the radar and then we'll get some traction and then maybe it's not as big a problem to worry about. And, but, but you've got to make a decision probably before that is settled. And so given your whole situation, I don't really see anything blatantly wrong with the way you're leaning. I would just make sure, again, that you're not leaving something behind that's particularly attractive from an income source. Because I do think as much as we should be kind of worried about the potential of something bad happening, it's still not real likely to happen. It's not like we're going to see, you know, all of these companies fail. It's just, there's going to be other, you know, hopefully none do. Honestly, there there's no guarantee that it will, but I'm, it's a worry that we don't have with a ERISA-based pension plan with PBGC, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corp., backing. That just feels a lot safer than the potential in these others. So, um, yeah, I don't really see anything absurdly wrong with her approach. And, and again, doesn't sound like she needs the money right away either, so I would tend to probably uh, 
invested in a way or positioned in a way in your portfolio that might not just be MIGAs. Because uh, it doesn't sound like you might not need it for quite a while, right? So you've got potentially a lot of a fair amount of risk capacity in these dollars. But again, if that you're just not you can't tolerate that and you want to play it a bit safer, I, you know, there's safer options than tr- you know traditional equity based investing. So you'll have to kind of decide that on your own. All right, I got one more question. Do we have time? Yes. Excellent. This one I meant to answer a while ago. She sent this in in February, but I wanted to kind of put her mind at ease. So um, she gave a little hint that I didn't even know. I just saw it here now. I would have never guessed the state. You ain't going to get this either. I'll be surprised if you do. Maybe you will. My home state is also home to the headquarters of UPS and Home Depot. Hmm. North Carolina? Close. Hmm. Georgia. Georgia. Okay. Okay. So she writes, I have recently been appointed executor of my aunt's estate. Unfortunately, she had not updated the beneficiaries of her IRA. And therefore, they are reverting to the estate. And I now have to deal with them. As a PSA to your listeners, update your beneficiaries, people. Mm-hmm. Let me pause there and just explain what she's saying. The aunt had no beneficiary. I'm guessing she had named someone as beneficiaries who predeceased her. That's what I'm guessing. Probably. So theoretically, when she died, there were no named beneficiaries on the form. What happens in a situation like that before it goes to the estate? And she says they are reverting to the estate. So I'm guessing they already looked into this. But if not, I'm going to encourage her to look into this. Go to the uh, plan document. God, I can't think of the, the name. Custodial plan document agreement. Four okays. Custodial agreement. Go to the custodial agreement for your aunt's IRA and look at the rules written into the custodial agreement on what happens to an IRA if there is no beneficiary. Some custodial agreements just defer straight to the estate. Others will go through a whole lineage. Children, Grandchildren, parents, spouses are usually first. And obviously, there's no spouse here, I don't think. I've seen some even to siblings. So read through the custodial agreement and see if there's anyone living because they're the ones who should be receiving the iron. I'm going to assume the custodian did do this with her or for her. But I wanted to share this with all our listeners. Before it just knee-jerk reaction go to the estate, there is no named living beneficiary on it. You always go to the custodial agreement first and see what that says. Okay. She died in October of 2023, and I have been trying to deal with them. Does she say who them are? 
Nope, she doesn't name who the company is. And I've been trying to deal with them in November and December. Oh, here it is. This is why it's getting difficult. One of the IRAs is actually an annuity. And she names the company. I'm not going to get into the company and the whole issue behind it. Um, It was a non-private equity-owned insurance company that was bought out twice and ultimately is now in the hands of private equity investors. And they changed the name to this company's name. And it's unfortunate because I liked the company before all this crap happened, and now they're owned by private equity. Private equity's taken over everything, Chris, and insurance. It's really starting to disgust me. I realize you won't say their name, but I don't owe them anything, so that's why I'm telling you. This company has refused three times to issue my aunt's remaining 2023 RMD. They said they will not, and I was shocked at reading this. They said they will not release the remaining 2023 RMD until I make a selection of what to do with the entire IRA annuity. I begged them to pro, uh, to process the 2023 RMD before 2023 ended. Remember, folks, she's been trying to do this in November and December of last year, and they refused. I'm appalled by that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, totally appalled. The company that used to be this insurance company, which I used to like, would have never done that. But they sold their annuity business then that company that bought the annuity business sold it, and then it was sold again to private equity. One of the issues with private equity companies that a lot of people complain about, their service stinks. I'm appalled because the rules are quite explicit, folks. The rules say the year of death RMD of a decedent must be taken when, Chris? By the end of the year of death. Year of death. Thank you. Yeah. And it's taken by the, beneficiary, by the beneficiary, which in this case is possibly the estate, but it needs to be. Right. But she's out. the executor of the estate. Mm-hmm. So she yep. is the face of the estate, the right. legal face of the estate. She's trying to get this remaining RMD out mm-hmm. and paid to the estate. She's the executor. She has to deal with this headache now. And the insurance company is saying, no, you got to tell us what to do with the entire annuity. I'm guessing there's multiple estate beneficiaries. They got to figure out who knows what's going to happen with the annuity. I don't know. Could you imagine, though, if the estate wasn't involved, but there were nine beneficiaries of this company's annuity? And they're trying and the company saying, no, until all nine people tell us what they want to do, we're not going to send out the year of death RMD. That's essentially what they're saying. They're, they're holding her hostage. So anyways, they refused three times to issue the remaining RMD for 2023 until I tell them what we want to do with the entire balance. I begged them to process the RMD, and I sent them the canceled check for the estate account, plus a letter of acceptance from the bank verifying the estate bank account. But still, they refused to process it. 
After talking to a CPA, I decided to open an inherited IRA in the estate's name. I opened it with Vanguard. It took Vanguard several weeks to get set up and to get their paperwork to the annuity company. And long, and long story short, the RMD was processed on January 19th, 2024. At that time, it paid out immediately to the beneficiaries of the estate. So she didn't get the year of death RMD out in time mm-hmm. until 2024. Mm-hmm. And it was supposed to have come out by December 31st, 2023. Her questions, as you can guess, my question has to do with these late RMDs. Mm-hmm. From your show, I know that the IRS no longer levies a 50% fine. And I'm looking at a 25%, possibly as low as 10% fine. However, I'm wondering a few things. Number one, this past summer, the IRS said it would not penalize people who do not take RMDs on an inherited IRA in 2023. But I think this only applies to IRAs inherited in 2020, 2021, or 2022. My estate inherited this IRA in 2023. Will this apply? It's not going to apply to you, listener, because you don't have the correct IRA for it to apply to. It only applies to IRAs subject to the 10-year rule, and you are correct. You Theoretically, your IRA, because I don't – well – you're, this is a good question. Wow, I could go down a rabbit hole here for sure. Yeah. Um, she has an estate. So we know from last week's Ed Slot program that we did with the Q&A, actually not last week, the week before, this is a ghost life expectancy, not a 10-year rule. So that special exemption is not going to apply. It only applies to IRAs subject to the 10-year rule. Right. You are correct. It only applies to IRAs inherited in 2021. 2020, 21, and 22, 2023 IRAs, which would have to pay their first RMD in 2024, if it was subject to the 10-year rule, the IRS hasn't ruled yet in 2024 if they can forego their RMD. Well, and that's a different RMD. The RMD we're dealing with here is the RMD that was owned by the the decedent. Totally different. IRA and a different RMD. Right. So, and I apologize for bopping back and forth between two different issues. I'm just trying to add some rabbit hole clarity for listeners. Even if the IRA wasn't subject, this this year of death RMD issue wasn't the issue, and she's just wondering, hey, do we have to take an RMD? I heard they were delayed. You wouldn't be subject to that because your IRA is subject to the ghost life expectancy rule, not the 10-year rule. The waiver was only for the 10-year rule. But Chris is also correct it won't apply to you because the RMD in question is your dead aunt's RMD. That hasn't been waived. Then she went on to say, 
One of Ed Slott's web pages that he wrote in August of 22 said it's very common for people to miss RMDs when death occurs late in the year mm-hmm. and that the IRS will generally automatically waive a penalty as long as the RMD is taken by the beneficiary's tax filing deadline, which for us would have been April 15. Do you concur with Ed's analysis? So let's look at this. In 2022, Ed was 100% correct. Most of the time, the IRS was forgiven. They're not, they're not the ogres that we often make them out to be. They do have hearts. They're humans. They go home to kids, I hope, and families. So they were saying, hey, we get it. Someone you loved died. You might not even know they didn't take the year of death RMD. And the law says you have to take it by December 31st of the year they die, or it's going to be subject to back then a 50% penalty. So when Ed wrote that article, he is correct when he said the IRS generally waives people in the year of death RMD if they take it by April 15th of the year, their tax filing deadline of the beneficiary, which for most people is April 15th plus extensions. The good news is Secure Act 2 codified that. Just like we spoke earlier on this show that Secure Act 2 codified that a prohibited transaction will only blow up that IRA, not all. Secure Act 2 codified into law that the year of death RMD does not have to be taken until April 15th of the year following death of the IRA owner or the tax filing deadline of the beneficiary, which for everyone is pretty much April 15th, plus extensions. So you have time. And the fact that you got the year of death RMD out January 19th of 2024, no harm, no foul. Because the next question is, should I go ahead and file form 5329 and ask for forgiveness on this lateness, because Ed Slot said they would. You don't have to even do that anymore, listener. It's automatic. You got the IR, excuse me, you got the RMD out in time. Secure Act 2 came to your defense. And then finally, my aunt actually has two IRAs. Her financial advisor told me that she already took her RMD from the IRA with him before she passed away. If she happened to have withdrawn extra from that IRA, and it turns out to be enough to have covered the RMD on her annuity IRA, would that have solved my problem? Do you want to answer that one, Chris? No. Okay, you weren't paying attention. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't know you weren't paying okay. attention. Uh, yes, listener, that would have. Your problem has been solved by Secure yeah. Act 2. Right. But if Secure Act 2 didn't codify that into law, then yes, you would have had to do number three, which was file form 5329. And like Ed Slot said, they pretty much would have approved it. But you would have filed form 5329, explained to them that the insurance company was just being jerks. And they wouldn't let you take the money out. 
So you didn't get it out until January, but it's all the insurance company's fault. They would have never hit you with a 50% penalty. Yeah. But number four, when you asked, she had an IRA at a totally different custodian. And the advisor said she took money out that satisfied his RMD from that IRA. And you were wondering if it was, if she took out more, could that have been used to offset the RMD from her annuity IRA? Absolutely. And that would have been one of the things that I would have been telling you to check on had Secure Act never satisfied this. So from all these different measures, the fact that she has another IRA and took out money, maybe more than what she needed to, that might have solved your problem. Secure Act definitely solved your problem. And even if none of that had happened, the IRS would have never hit you with a penalty on it. It wasn't your fault. It was the insurance companies. Could you imagine if the IRS said, no, we're going to hit you with a penalty tax on that? Just because the insurance company withheld your money, that's not an excuse? No, not at all. But it does highlight my disgust of private equity-owned insurance companies. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, sorry, I didn't pay attention to a couple things you said about it. To answer that, my dog was making kind of a strange noise, and it distracted me. (laughs) Is he okay? Yeah, it sounded like it wasn't okay, but... uh... Uh, everything seems fine, so I think we're Which good. Which dog? Is it the little bulldog thing? that? Yeah, is the little French bulldog that we have. Okay. It was a sound I hadn't normally heard from her, so I thought something might be wrong. But Don't bulldogs normally make sound because their noses are so squished mm-hmm. in? She's not as bad. She's actually, she breathes very well and has good airflow, so she's she's not like some of them. Some of them are very loud and snorty and pig-like and things. She She can make pig sounds every once in a while, but... Not normally. Okay. This was more of a weird howling cry thing, which made me think something was wrong, but I think she's just lonely. <laughs> so it's all good. Okay. All righty. Well, anyways, folks, that wraps it up. Kind of an interesting show, covered quite a few mm-hmm. different topics. So uh, good. Yeah. Okay. Well, sounds good. Um, Again, like I said at the top of the show, if you want to send in your own questions, just send them to Jim directly, jim at jimhelps.com. Put the subject uh, in the subject line that it's a question for the podcast. We appreciate everybody listening, and uh, safe travels back from Florida if I don't talk to you before you head back. and uh, Yeah, I'll be at the beach tomorrow, and then flying home on Saturday. i got to pick my sister up at the airport uh, Saturday. She's flying into Punta Gorda. So I've never driven down that way before. So I'm going to go pick her up from the airport. You know, she went home to to help out with a medical issue back home. Mm-hmm. So she'll come in on Saturday and then I fly out uh, 10 o'clock Sunday morning. So uh, looking forward. I mean, I like it here. I've had fun. It's been nice. But I'm also looking forward to, to getting back home to my house and getting everything moving forward. Mm-hmm. Nice. Thanks, everybody. Everybody have a nice uh, weekend if you're listening to this when it uh, when it drops on Saturday. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. 
Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saunier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 